0: It's 3 o'clock in the morning, and that patient is turning south. Who are they supposed to call for problems?
1: I think there's a thing called sham holding orders.
0: If you're looking for a 100%, get a religion. Don't go into medicine. If you don't have the hissing wounds and IV lines hanging, get out of the hospital. Hello again. It's Greg Henry.
1: And Rick Bukata.
0: And we're coming to you on Risk Management Monthly, November. Rick, you and I have just gotten back from the ASEP meeting. We got to meet a lot of people who are listening to Risk Management Monthly. In fact, yep. I had one guy who came up to me and said, the last issue we did with uh, the 20 uh, things you need to do for the chart, uh, he said it was so good, he's going to make everybody in his group listen to it. Now, what he didn't do was say he was going to make everybody in his group take a subscription to Risk Management Monthly, but I'm sure it's going to be passed around, and we're gonna we're gonna have at least a lot of new friends, if at least uh, probably not people who are paying tuition. However,
1: it sounds like a spear to my chest. Basically, uh, you know, this is Friday morning, and um, I, I'm I like the idea that people are listening, but I'd like them to subscribe too. Uh, and speaking of subscribing, I wanted to point out. And Give it um, a little attaboy to the uh, Infinity Group up in Wisconsin. One of but, our favorites. Yeah, Glenn Aldridge, um, Aldinger, pardon me, Glenn, Gary Zaid, and uh, Hector uh, Aguilera. Um, this is a really avant garde group, obviously, because they've just uh, purchased uh, Risk Management Monthly for all of their. Uh, doctors. But in addition, I've been actually following them for a while. These guys are real smart. They came up with a really cool software program, which um, is, was licensed all over the country that uh, pre-hospital folks were using to determine whether hospitals were available to take patients in ambulance transport. And they've done a, a couple of other things like that. And so these guys are um, obviously demonstrating that how clever they are by being Subscribers, and clearly, we would like all of you, particularly those of you who are self-insured, to um, come on board. But then again, that's enough of the uh, sales pitch for this morning.
0: Yeah, self-promotion can only go so far. But uh, and and uh, listen, if they think the last uh, issue was great. Uh, they're going to love this one because I think we got some good topics here, Rick.
1: You know, we got uh, we we do have about oh, four or five little uh, little snippets that we're going to going to do. They're pretty much unrelated, and uh, let's get started on the first one. Greg. This is about coronary um, ACS pitfalls, and I oh, think-
0: absolutely, and and you know, when I look back at all the stuff that that I've done since 1976, which was my first. Trial, first time I was an expert witness, the numbers say the same thing. Uh, It's gone down maybe a little from 40 to 30, but still about 30% of the lawsuits, and certainly of the big loss lawsuits in emergency medicine, come from chest pain. Hello, how long is it going to take for people to realize certain factors? And so let's set up a couple of little scenarios here, Rick, uh, and, and see, see where the fallacies are. The first, uh, first one is the resident that you're working with, bright guy, about to finish, comes up to you and says, the chest pain patient who he's now working up has no risk factors. Oh, my God. He's actually asked about risk factors. Does it matter, Rick? Does it make any difference? Well, um, well, you there's know, gotta Greg, be there's got to be studies on this.
1: When people look at a uh, thousand individuals and uh, they find out that there's a subset who have hypertension, cholesterol, uh, diabetes, family history. Well, yeah, that maybe uh, indicates a subset that are in- at increased risk. But we're not dealing with 1,000 people in the emergency department. We're dealing with one person in front of us, and that's uh, where you cannot extrapolate from the 1,000 and say, well, if this person has no risk factors, he's, uh, he's, he's okay. This, this is a really, really dangerous uh, perception, and I hear it all the time. You've got no but, risk factors.
0: Yeah, let's, let's look at this paper that appeared in uh, Angiology uh, December uh, 2009. This is Saab's paper. And even when you take big numbers, the big numbers are so damn close that you can't rule anything out. In about 50% of cases, the presentation of ACS is the first manifestation of their coronary artery disease. Half the deaths due to coronary artery disease occur in uh, individuals who are previously asymptomatic. Um, You know, I I shouldn't inject uh, my, my personal life here, but... I didn't have one moment's chest pain uh, before I got funny face and, and uh, jaw pain and had uh, six vessels bypassed. So, so don't think that any of this previous history necessarily rules out a disease.
1: Right. You know, the idea here is um, if you have a bunch of risk factors and a person who's in front of you, you're going to take those seriously. And it's going to suggest that uh, your concern about ACS is very legitimate. I'm not concerned about that person. I'm concerned about the one who is pristine and doesn't have one of them. And you think, well, that's that, that's probably okay. This well, study th- that you're talk- talking about is from your ne- up the street from you.
0: Yeah, about eight about eight blocks from here, exactly. The University of Michigan, where they said, yeah, okay, let's take our our 941 pay, uh, people who have ACS, 59% smoke, but that means 41% didn't. 56% had, had hypertension, that's about half. You might as well flip a coin. 48% had a family history of coronary artery disease, that's half. Here, here's what I teach uh, the residents, and anytime I'm teaching this subject, Rick, risk factors are good for two things. In a, in a family practice office, you can counsel people about behavior, things that will maybe help their life down the road. Perfectly legitimate, perfectly valid. Secondly, when they're in the department in front of you, if they've got positive risk factors, okay, I'm willing to stir that in the mix. If you come in and say, I, I smoke, I'm fat, I'm hypertensive, and oh, my three brothers died of an MI, I, I'm not going to avoid that. But in, in the posi- in the positive direction, they're positive. In the negative direction, they're indeterminate, and there is no formula that you can use to rule out uh, acute uh, coronary disease based on negatives.
1: There you go. There's uh, one other paper just to na- uh, put the nail in this coffin. It's entitled actually The Role of Cardiac Risk Factor Burden in Diagnosing ACS in the Emergency Department. This was in the of Emergency Medicine in February 2007. Almost 11,000 patients presenting to one of eight U.S. emergency departments for a suspected ACS. First of all, they said 8% of the people had it, and that seems to me to be pretty low, and I wonder whether, in fact, that's the case because now the standard says for you to be able to say a person doesn't have ACS, you have to have them <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, get a couple of markers over a period of six to eight hours. You have to do a couple of EKGs over a period of six to eight hours. If that's okay, then you have to put them through some kind of Either imaging or stressor test to see whether they have latent coronary disease, which caused that visit to the emergency department. So they only came up with eight percent. But even if that's true, one out of eight who had acute coronary syndrome had absolutely no risk factors. One out of eight, and a quarter and twenty-seven,
0: of had, twenty twenty-seven percent only had one. Right, right. So, so I mean, come on now. Most of us have something somewhere. You know, these things happen.
1: Right. So there, you know, I think this and there's other papers that we don't need to get into the, the specifics of it, but be real careful about being um, confused or um, making light of the fact that a person has no risk factors. This is, well, this is a dangerous business.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's a dangerous business. And let me point out one other thing that, that happens all the time. We take certain groups of patients. Uh, and, and we think we can apply the same symptoms against them as other groups of patients. And it's been pointed out very clearly that if you were looking at women, older men, all these subgroups, atypical symptoms occur all the time. Sudden fatigue, shortness of, uh, or well, uh, back and neck and jaw pain. Hello, that's me. Uh, and I, I want to point out one that I think we, we pass by too often, and that is, in the elderly, shortness of breath may be the only presenting complaint of their acute MI.
1: There you go. Um, Greg, why don't you get into the next <clears throat> next one of these, which is the uh, person who has, says, I had a normal stress test.
0: Oh, uh, well, I, I want to point out some things that, that uh, all of us need to come to grips with. I don't remember a study, Rick, and you may, you're the, you're the study guy, but the best of the studies say that the, that the stress tests we do are about 75% accurate. Is that a, is that a fair statement? Yeah, I, that's
1: what, we're talking about actually sensitivity, picking up coronary right. disease in those picking who have it. it. So basically, right. it's a, not a very good test at all.
0: No, it's not a good test. And so if they come in to me and say, well, I, I've, I've had a negative stress test, the next question is, when did you have it? If it was two years ago, that means nothing. If it was yesterday, I know that I can be 30% wrong. And so you have to take all of those factors in together and pretty much say this. If that is a standard stress test, not not a nuclear study or anything like that, what you're looking at is about a 25% um, uh, miss rate. And who the hell is going to send somebody home with a quarter percent chance, a 25 percent chance of being wrong. I think in general, the stress test, not talking here about somebody who's been calfed, but somebody who's had a stress test, if you're you're going to base your decisions on that, we have a new name for you, the defendant physician.
1: Greg, we've got a paper here that specifically looked at that. They looked at um, death myocardial infarction, and revascularization at 30 days in people with suspected ACS. 10% of them had that nasty outcome um, compared with 5% who had a normal stress test. So if you have a normal stress test, your, your risk is like half of what it is if you have an abnormal stress test. But it's not zero. As a matter of fact, the people who had no stress test had a 5% Incidents of having death, myocardial, or uh, revascularization. So don't go down that blind uh, pathway regarding the stress test business. Then the other thing is coming up, actually the misinterpretation of EKGs. And there's a nice paper here we have in our database entitled EKG Differentiation Of benign early repolarization versus acute myocardial infarction by emergency physicians and cardiologists. This was also done in academic emergency medicine by Dr. Turnipseed back in 2006. And basically, they had, they determined at least, that um, among 1,300 people with STEMIs, according to what a core lab. Uh, assessment of their EKG and biomarkers, that STEMI was not identified on the on-site EKG and a third of the cases, a third of the cases. So there's opportunities here for misinterpretation of these subtle changes in ST segments, and we have to acknowledge that that's going to occur every once in a while.
0: By the way, on the tombstone of defendant physicians is written nonspecific ST." weight changes uh it it's it's kicked out by uh, the machine all the time and my view of it is this a I i have the same view as i do with with risk factors and that and i want to summarize it which just by saying this a positive ekg is a positive a negative is indeterminate and it 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 just doesn't carry any weight one way or the other and uh, in the largest series ever published in the New England Journal, 70% of people when, uh, on their first EKG were, who, were about, who were about to infarct, uh, they could not diagnose it from that initial EKG. So come on now. Uh, if you think that one EKG rules out an MI, uh, that, that's wrong. It's just plain wrong.
1: Well, plus we have this issue of, some er in interpretation of the subtleties between benign, nonspecific, and those reflecting ACS. Now, are, let's, let's get to the next point. We have two to go. This point, Greg, is, all right, you're having chest pain right now, right now, and I'm taking an EKG, and that EKG is normal. Can I therefore infer that if you're having chest pain, and the EKG is normal, that this is not cardiogenic chest pain?
0: Eh, <laughs> nope, can't do it. The presence of a normal or non-specific EKG while the patient is having chest pain uh, is not a hundred percent in any way, shape, or form. And by the way, that's back and forth, all different ways. But just under this is a paper again, by that you're getting into uh, Rick is another one by Dr. Turnipseed. He seems to be pretty prolific in this area. Um, you realize that Turnipseed is was a common uh, last name in england at a certain time and they use occasionally use the term mustard seed which appeared in the midsummer night's dream but i wax into shakespeare we won't do that greg
1: you're such a a, a you know a renaissance person this comes up all the time you know the the, the scope of your knowledge and awareness <laughs> of uh antiques and you know going to rouse in in uh New yeah. Orleans, and
0: yeah. So how come how come I can't actually program my my uh, my uh, DVD recorder, Rick? I mean, I, it's, that's what it's you a have kids problem. for, Greg. <laughs> that's what yeah, exactly right. That's why there's twelve year olds in the neighborhood. But the point here is very very clear. If they're walking on the treadmill, and and they've got chest pain, and you're looking at the at the machine and it's negative, they're still having chest pain. If they're laying in bed in your emergency department. And if the history and physical says reasonable probability of ACS, the 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 uh, EKG, even if they're having some pain, is indeterminate, just say, you know what, we need a tie-breaking test at this moment.
1: Right. So we have two papers. You'll see these in the notes that basically nail this, that you cannot get any confidence in saying this is not coronary pain because... Um, the EKG is normal during the presence of chest pain. And lastly, Greg, let's do a quick one on the new super-sensitive troponins.
0: <laughs> well, this is, this is almost a joke that we call it the super-sensitive troponin because, because uh, everybody'd like – and you know what? I want the same thing everybody else wants. I want a blood test, which is 99% sensitive and, and 99% sp- uh, specific – I'd love to have that. See, I want something as good as, as the urine pregnancy test for the heart, but we don't have it. Uh, super sensitive troponins are not super sensitive. And you, you cannot take a negative, even a super sensitive troponin, one of them, and say that a myocardial event did not occur.
1: Right. We have a paper that we're going to give you the reference to that basically looked at super sensitive troponins. Uh, In fact, this is a paper that came out in April of 2011, hot off the press. And basically it said it missed a quarter of the cases. If you do a super sensitive troponin, the first one in a person in the emergency department, a quarter of them were negative.
0: Yeah, this is this is the paper from the uh, Emergency Medicine uh, Journal of Australia. Uh, and and this is our friend Anne Marie Kelly, uh, who uh, wrote this paper. And uh, we we all know Anne Marie. Uh, she writes about a paper a day, doesn't she? Something you, like that. Well, they have yeah, nothing I, else I, to I, do
1: in Australia.
0: Yeah, that must be the case. But uh, shout out to uh, Anne Marie. We love you, and uh, happy to to recognize your paper. But it said the right thing, which is uh, if if you're wrong, twenty five percent of the time we can't be 25% wrong in emergency medicine. We can't do it. Uh, you know, in baseball, uh, if, you, if two out of three times you have to go sit down cause you didn't hit the ball, um, you're called the American league batting champion. <laughs> if we're wrong, 25% of the time, uh, you're dead meat guy. Can't do it. Well, you know, it's so, still
1: down yeah. to the, uh, idea of what is the acceptable miss rate? And, uh, and in the United States, at least for acute coronary syndrome, it's still uh, not zero. We're still missing, you know, one to 2% of these cases. And my recollection, Greg, is that cases that involve ACS that go to litigation, there is an increased proportion of these cases being won by plaintiffs, number one. And number two, they remain the highest dollar transfers on average in terms of the number of cases times the number of dollars. They still represent the biggest loss in, to emergency physicians.
0: They do, Rick. And uh, and it's uh, amazing, again, your knowledge of this, because it is the largest single lump of money. Now, The single largest case awards are in bad brains, often related to bad airways that got resuscitated and things like that. But coronary artery disease times its frequency clearly is the major amount of money that's being spent. And just as a corollary to throw this out, make this complete, anybody listening to this tape who thinks you can decide that the chest pain is GI – by, uh, be, uh, besides uh, besides looking at the uh, e- negative EKG, negative proponents, never use a GI cocktail, uh, something given, to say that something is a GI problem as opposed to a heart problem. That is, we all did this early on in our careers. I look back in the 70s and the 80s, I suppose it was going on. But that has been debunked in every paper. I, I don't even know that there exists a paper that's positive saying that there's any useful value in giving either nitroglycerin or a GI cocktail.
1: So there you go. We have five myths that we just kind of delved into. There's lots of literature support. You're not going to get any experts just to uh, stand up behind you if you screw up on these five issues. Yep. Greg, let's move to um, another topic. I don't know who is the precipitant of this? But there is an issue that we like to briefly discuss on holding orders. Um, because although the college, in the, at least in the past, basically took a position on, uh, on not doing it, I know lots and lots of doctors who do it. They're in smaller community hospitals. Their medical staff is um, expects it of them the the emergency physicians want to help out and so basically they're writing holding orders. And so I want to just focus on a couple of points. First of all, I think there's a thing called sham holding orders, which basically says you write down when the patient arrives on the floor, please call the admitting doctor. Those are yeah, not that's holding a sham. orders. Yes.
0: Exactly. That's a sham. And and if your hospital's willing to put up with that, that's fine. But most of them aren't. And and when you think about it You've just spoken to the guy on the phone, and uh, now the patient's uh, heading to the floor. That's a sham. So let's move on to some, some real admitting order problems, Rick.
1: Well, yeah, I think that per, uh, some of them are pretty straightforward. Frequency of vital signs, I would be fairly generous about asking vital signs in a person going to the floor. Diet, you know, it's irrelevant. You, know, this, you don't need to give them the two-gram sodium thing, which is, makes the hospital diet even more unpalatable. Uh, yeah, ambulation. That's uh, that's an important one because you, I
0: want to I want to jump in on that one, Rick, because I've had f- at least four cases in my career where the emergency doc had written orders and uh, did not uh, write I- uh, any specific or wrote uh, incomplete ambulation orders. Now, when you've written uh, for an 80 year old to be admitted, do you think they might be a little confused? Do you think they might uh, trip on their IV line? Uh, you know what? Think cautiously here. If you look at where patients are hurt, they're often hurt in the hospital itself. I'm I'm one of those people who believes if you don't have de hissing wounds and IV lines hanging, get out of the hospital uh, because only bad things happen in hospitals, particularly with older patients. So this ambulation question, I've gotten those where they've fallen and broken a hip. I got one where they got a subdural hematoma. This this is not minimal stuff.
1: Right. So the idea here would be to be careful. Ambulation with assistance may be reasonable. Um, so that's, that's an issue. The other thing we're going to concern ourselves with is making sure that current medications that are important, at least, some of them are not important. It doesn't matter whether you give them their cholesterol pill when you send them upstairs. That's um, put down the ones that that, that matter. And, and certainly initiate in the emergency department any antibiotics. Do not wait for the floor to do that because it, God knows when that's going to happen. But the real gist of this is passing on the, the responsibility to the next doctor. So one of my views of this is that you should write the whole idea of you writing holding orders was to allow this doctor to get some sleep they've been busy in their office all day they've had calls all night so you're going to give them a break and give them an opportunity to get some sleep so i think it's important to say in the morning at nine o'clock be very specific please call dr x for additional orders that way you're rick, not tell them the
0: story rick tell them the story <laughs> about the guy who fell asleep
1: i i this is this is really weird greg but it, it did happen to me a long 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 time ago i wrote some holding orders for a patient uh, to doing a doctor a favor and um, two days later the doctor had never seen the patient and they they're asking me now to discharge the patient do a discharge summary of the patient this patient probably had some kind of pneumonia i don't re- recall what the problem was but the family doctor never saw the patient everything that could go wrong did go wrong nurses never called and this guy's in the hospital on autopilot for two days
0: yeah doesn't this bother you a little bit that we got a bed that's costing a couple of thousand bucks a day and they're sitting around and nobody after like 8 10 12 hours says hey you think maybe somebody should talk to this guy or do something you know what when you and i go to in and out burger uh, we give them our name, and pretty much they have the burger in two minutes, uh, and they don't charge two thousand bucks. I promise you. I I don't understand how these things happen, Rick. I I really don't. Well,
1: the idea here is the idea is that you must. Be very time-specific and say, please call Dr. X at this hour so that you're making it very clear when it needs to be done, not when you get around to it kind of thing. So, yeah. um, and you know, my experience certainly was atypical, but I think it resulted in some prudent information. Get very let's, specific about when you want that doctor called.
0: Let's get down to the real problem I've seen in my cases. That has to do with everything's fine when things are going fine. But now you admitted the patient at midnight. In fact, you've gone home. You're off the shift. Now it's three o'clock in the morning, and that patient is turning south. Who are they supposed to call for problems? Uh, the the admitting doc hasn't come in, and and uh, you know this needs to be this needs to be explicit. Who gets contacted if there's a problem? Because now there's a new emergency doc in the department. He's never seen the case. So, what does he do? Does he run up to the floor to see the the case and leave the emergency department exposed? what i 've done a few times is i 've just had him put him on a cot and bring him back to the emergency department and I took took a look at him if they couldn 't get a hold of the uh, attending doctor but uh, this this is a real question you can't there needs to be a bright line in the sand as to who's managing and taking care of sick people. And uh, that's that's why the old traditions that all of us grew up with, you know, family doc has some inpatients. I think I think in five years that's going to be something of historical interest only. Rick, mm-hmm, I agree. Uh, it's like it's like a blunderbuss. You can't be running a busy outpatient practice and doing moment to moment changes on sick people. In, in those cases, the hospital's OK to die in but it's no place to be resuscitated in. Well, here's another
1: uh, specific point, I think, in that regard. Yes, the patient is going south. There's some problems uh, developing. I think a reasonable order that a physician could write in the emergency department regarding that patient is, please call Dr. So-and-so should there be any concerns or questions regarding the care of the patient. Please call the emergency physician if Dr. So-and-so has not called back within 30 minutes. That way, it's very clear... The family doctor is being asked to deal with the problems, but if, in fact, that doctor is not able to be gotten a hold of, those are your orders on that patient. You need to be uh, involved in in, um, solving the problem if the family doctor can. And the other thing, Greg, is you mentioned, I think we talked about this offline, calling the doctor's alternate. Sometimes the doctor's alternate that is mandated by the medical staff as having an alternate is on vacation or out of town or, or is not reachable. So bottom line is, I think if you're going to write those orders, you need to be the safety net underneath them. If in fact, the family doctor cannot be reached in a timely manner.
0: All right, Rick, I think we've made our point here uh, and our listeners at least are not going to make these kinds of mistakes. There, there are people, I promise you, before I, my career is done in this, there'll be another one of these cases come my way. All right, let's move on here. Greg, uh, um, what's, what's the next topic? The um, Well, I saw
1: something in the American Journal of Radiology that was pretty cool, actually. We've talked about this in the past, but I only want to cover it briefly. So here's a radiologist who's complaining about another radiologist who's an expert witness who is clearly giving egregious testimony. And um, so there's... a. So this radiologist writes into the American Journal of Radiology, and there's somebody who gives a response to it. And basically, says, you know, turn them into the uh, American College of Radiology. Maybe they'll do something, although they're generally fairly reluctant. But in this case, they did do some kind of uh, sanction uh, regarding this person, regarding a letter. And here's what the guy did. The guy who is the who is the radiologist who, who testifies badly against other radiologists, when he went to court, he said... I have the courage to testify against other radiologists, and that's why the American College of Radiologists censored me. Have you run yeah, into yeah, this listen, kind of thing?
0: I've run into this in every specialty. They always say, look, I'm the one who's protecting the public. I'm doing this. I pre- He probably claims he fixed little bird's wings, too, as a child. I mean, uh, that's all crap. Uh, and, and I think what we have to understand is every profession— every one of the specialties has to have an aggressive program at looking for egregious testimony. Egregious is from the Greek, from the herd, egregious. And that means the testimony is not necessarily a big, huge lie, but it's clearly departs from what the majority of people in the profession would say. And I think that, uh, you know, There is a reasonable standard of care in radiology and emergency medicine and anesthesia and everything else. If you're looking for 100%, get a religion. Don't go into medicine because there are no 100 percents in our business that I know of. By the way, Rick, uh, testifying is a form of medical practice, and they can also be reported in many states to the state licensing board, and uh, god help you if they're on uh, on your butt for your uh, egregious testimony. Well, you know, this
1: article did talk about that as an option, but they said it's really tough for state licensing boards to take action in those regards and they bring up a case of a neurosurgeon who was whose license was taken away and ultimately after a fair amount of litigation the neurosurgeon got their license back. In this regard, it's interesting
0: which- though, Rick. It took five years, and, 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 and it took 500—I I know this case, and quite frankly, I know the guy. It took $500,000 of his money uh, to get his license back. I think the point was made here that, that okay, you know, uh, w- we may do this again. It's, it's, going after witnesses is not a bad thing to do. I, uh, I spent uh, last Friday— in, uh, in, a, in a deposition where my only job, really, I represented the carrier, was to sit there and look at that doc who was uh, testifying against us. And the funny thing is, when I'm sitting there, three feet from his face, looking like I've got a knife to pull, uh, the testimony all changed. And we're going to be dropped from that case. Emergency docs in general have been too kind, too passive, too polite in these areas but i don't have any feelings about it <laughs> yeah i got you, you so listen yeah, greg yeah,
1: you yeah. were you were paid to look at another doctor
0: yeah well is that what you're uh, saying i am uh, i as you know rick i am the uh, risk consultant for an, uh, our own insurance company so i had standing that is i had a right to be in that room and listen to the deposition and just like the the physician who was who was named has a right to go to the deposition of the expert against him or her. I always advise them to do that because I think it tends to straighten up the testimony.
1: Now, now let me get this straight, Greg. You sat there and did not say a word and just looked at this guy in the eye across the table, and that you were paid for that.
0: I, And I'm quite good <laughs> at that, Rick. <laughs> you know, I wanted yes. to... That,
1: I wanted to bring up one radiology-related paper that basically shows how great our expert witness system is. So there's this case where an expert radiologist says the 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 uh, patient's radiologist missed three important kinds of findings on a CAT scan, and had they picked up these three important findings, they would have saved the person. They would have never had this problem. And uh, it's so that was the allegation. So what they did is they took the CAT scan of this person with the three supposedly critical findings, and they gave them to 31. They mixed it up with five other patients and gave them to 31 experienced radiologists, most in academia. And uh, of the of these three critical findings, none of the 31 radiologists picked up two of the three critical findings. And 19 of the 31 radiologists looked at, found one of the findings. So, this is our great expert witness system in action.
0: Well, you know, whenever you want to view something that is artistic, like the reading of x rays, uh, the Mayo Clinic, uh, years past, did the best study ever done. They took all the young kids under two chest x rays, presented them to the radiologists. And they disagreed with each other 25% of the time as to whether there was an ammonia. Then what they did was they snuck the same x-rays in six months later, and each of the radiologists disagreed with themselves 25% of the time as to whether an ammonia existed. So whatever we say that there's a simple black and white on these things, there isn't. This is, th- th- this is a difficult process. And for somebody to walk in and say, oh, this is egregious that they would have missed this, um, you know, it takes a lot of guts to say that, I think.
1: Hey, Greg, let's move on to um, a little update on the uh, Texas malpractice situation. You know, in 2003, okay. they had some uh, remarkable legislation. And in fact, they had to change their constitution to uh, pull off about five of these major, um, uh, what do you call these things, reforms. Okay, so what yes. did they do? They limited uh, caps on pain and suffering to a quarter of a million dollars, which is the same as, as it's been in California for a long time. That was number one. They Number two, they limited the time for filing a claim. The third thing they did is they did tough standards with regarding to um, – Proof. Uh, you know, a number of states now have increased the uh, the the rules about what is uh, concern uh, considered uh, acceptable evidence in these cases. They did right. a um, they they made tougher qualifications for experts, and lastly, they allowed periodic payments. So that was the five things that they did, and as a result of that, in two thousand and three there was a flood of doctors going into Texas. In fact, I, we re, uh, reported not too long ago that there was a lineup. they the, the uh, folks that um, licensed doctors in, in Texas were so far behind. And the reason I bring all of this up, the premiums went down substantially um, was that there isn't a belief that if there is substantial malpractice reform that physicians will, not be ordering as many kind of uh, tests that are thought to be related to defensive practice and that there should be some objective measure of the fact that now that we're spending less money because we're less worried oh, about being sued.
0: Oh, oh, wrong. Oh, great one. <laughs> as, as, as you will remember, we have ingrained behaviors from the time we were in medical school to check boxes and order tests. Is it wrong? Yep is this little change going to change it? Not yet, because as you remember, when Texas looked to see, did this actually reduce the cost of health care? What was the answer to that, Rick?
1: Actually, it went up disproportionately compared to the yes. other states.
0: And that that to me is absolutely hilarious. And But by the way, whenever we think that there's any smoothness or consistency in the health care in the United States... I always point out to that study, uh, going back uh, uh, to the Dartmouth study, that looked at the cost of Medicare payments in the various states. On average, we spend two and a half times more money in Miami as we do in Minneapolis on each Medicare patient. In fact, we spend three times more money than we do on all the Medicare patients in South Dakota. And... Here's the hilarity. The people in South Dakota live longer. You know, there's no consistency between what is spent, what is ordered, what is done, and how good a life they have. And I, and, and I don't know how we're going to get that idea across, Rick.
1: Yeah, I'm a big fan of the Dartmouth Atlas. And um, the numbers that you quoted, I think, are pretty much uh, right on. And um, in Miami, there are bajillions of doctors and the and lawyers of, yeah and the laws of economics do not apply to medicine the more doctors that you have the more doctor visits that there are you would think that no. there would be competition and none of that applies in no, medicine no no in
0: fact rick every time this has been looked at doctors change their behavior to to reach an income target that they think is fair and so if 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 you reduce what you're going to pay them per visit but they're still paid on a per-visit basis, they increase the number of return visits for the patient. Absolutely. I mean, this this isn't anything new. And, you know, I'm sure if the cavemen had doctors, they did the same thing. I mean, this is inherent in humans. And so the system itself needs to be, let's say, somewhat modified.
1: So this report from public citizens that we're referring to basically says that if anything expenditures for at least Medicare patients has gone up higher than the national average despite their massive reforms in malpractice.
0: Yep, that's absolutely right. Uh, Let's get into some letters, Rick. And, you know, at the national meeting, uh, again, I got pummeled on my wine of the month choices. Um, I can't believe how seriously some people take this stuff. But uh, it was also being uh, banter to the fact that you and I did a bit a couple of months ago on how do you tackle the question of the older physician working in the emergency department. And I don't think anybody was actually happy with, with our resolution of that problem. Uh, the truth of the matter is, I'm not sure there's an easy resolution of this problem. What are your thoughts on this?
1: Well, you know, Greg, I wanted you to give the answer because I don't know what the answer is. This was well, a case brought up by somebody who said we think one of our older doctors is kind of slipping uh they're not obviously demented but they're not as sharp as they were and we are picking up more mistakes that are occurring and what do we do with that and you know honestly greg i don't have a great answer because there's you know there's all kinds of issues Related to, well, if this doctor is an employee, there are some issues regarding age discrimination. If they're an independent contractor, you probably have more latitude. But, but, but fundamentally, this is a really tough issue. And Greg, I was hoping you'd have the answer.
0: Well, there's some thoughts here. We talked about the fact that there's a, a critical jobs act. And so if you're talking about airline, airline pilots... They raised that mandatory retirement age to 62. And the joke of that is they're a team in that cockpit. Uh, They cover each other. Uh, And they, quite frankly, have to make fewer decisions than the average doctor is. It's interesting that we consider them so critical that we will impose an age restriction, but we don't think that's true with doctors, which is uh, amazing to me. But I, but I will say this. You have an obligation to the public that if someone is is slowing down, falling behind, having trouble with return visits, you need to have a system which at least picks up some of these problems. You're right. If If you're a subcontractor, they can always um, on an, on an at will basis, give, have a no cause termination of the contract, which avoids the age question. But with employees, I think you need to sit down, come up with a series that looks at these are critical issues, which, which are going to trigger investigation. Now, if you've got an old doc, you know, running around with his zipper down all the time, I'm not sure whether that's, uh, senility or sexual harassment. I suppose it depends on the state you're in. Yeah, ask but, Herman Kane. Yeah, ask Herman Kane, right? But the but we need to have some measure to look at this. And if we think that this problem is going away, since everyone's 401k became a 201k, uh, we have guys, particularly those with uh, particularly those with uh, multiple wives and multiple children. Who uh, they're not they're not stopping at sixty five, Rick. I, I got one guy in my group. He's got kids who are in their thir- late thirties and forties. Some who were teenagers, and he's got a two year old. Oh my God! If I, I if somebody told me I was going to have a two year old again, there isn't a building high enough in this town for me to jump off of. Yeah, oh I God. agree.
1: I would shoot myself. You know, yeah, Greg. Yeah. One, one of the things that comes up is um, in these um, older uh, older patients relating to, um, and not the older patients, (laughs) yeah, right. Uh, older, older doctors is the culpability that your group may have. So this person is, is an independent contractor and they can be terminated more or less at will. But if in fact your group knows that this person is starting to slip and is making errors and does not do anything about it, um, then your group becomes responsible uh, in addition to the, the to the doctor because you knew that this person was having issues and you didn't do anything about it so don't think that you can just kind of put your head in the sand about this because you will be incurring your own liability if you ignore these problems
0: absolutely rick i think i'm turning you in, into a legal sleuth here <laughs> the term the term in law is knew or should have known that is you have an independent responsibility if you run a business to the public and uh, to know that certain things are going on and 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 that's exactly right um let's let's move on to our next letter here it's from a friend of ours uh, david Essler.
1: david brings up a point which is uh kind of interesting um it relates to adjunctive care he basically makes the assertion that there is certain care that is given in the emergency department, which is essential that you must do. It's the first dose of antibiotics in the meningitis case. Um, nobody's going to argue that that should be done early on. You know, actually, it should probably be done as soon as you s- suspect it, independent of doing the lumbar puncture. But then he's but he's focusing now on what he calls adjunctive care, and if a doctor doesn't deliver adjunctive care. Although it may not be ideal care, does that warrant a claim of malpractice against that physician? And he specifically got into the issue of the adjunctive use of steroids in a meningitis case. You gave the antibiotics; that's great, but you didn't give the steroids, and he's wondering, well, that's not great, you know, fabulous, but it's not uh, an issue of malpractice, or is it? What do you think about? adjunctive care in some, you know, generically, Greg?
0: Well, see, the problem with this particular case is um, there's a battle about this. You and I both have read the papers, Rick, that talk about not only do you need to give steroids, but you have to give them before, you know, you have to give them two minutes before you give the antibiotic and all that kind of stuff, none of which is actually confirmed uh, in any of the studies. Uh, Some people got on their high horse about this as if they had information the rest of us don't have. Certainly, they didn't have good medical uh, papers with with statistical proof that this was the case. But they went on to this, well, it seems like a good idea. Uh, I I don't think that emergency docs should be held to things which have not have some basis in medical fact. Simply because a lot of people think it might work doesn't make it right and we have to be very careful wandering into those areas the other thing is rick there is no perfect care when we grade the boards in emergency medicine the abms boards we do an oral there's a scoring system there there's a path there's a level below which though you're not going to pass but there's a, a wide spectrum at the top in which people are allowed to do various things and I think that uh, that's the way life is. A, a, the standard of care is that which, in fact, I was just speaking to an attorney from Mississippi. They use the term minimally uh, competent physician would do. Minimally competent physician is what the standard of care is. And so uh, when you start talking about these adjunctive therapies, um, it's hard to know. By the way, I don't think steroids these days, is a true adjunctive therapy, but that's just my opinion.
1: Well, actually, uh, Greg, I diverted my response to David's question by saying, in this particular case, I would focus on the medicine. And uh, we have a great paper in the abstracts, March 2010, in Lancet Neurology. And listen to the title of this thing. Adjunctive, there's the word, adjunctive dexamethasone in bacterial meningitis, a meta-analysis of individual patient data. This is a look at almost 2,000 people who had meningitis between the years of 2002, 2007. They were involved in five double-blind, randomized, uh, placebo-controlled trials of steroids. And the conclusion of this analysis, where they looked at each individual case and pulled them together, no clear evidence that adjunctive dexamethasone is beneficial in patients with bacterial meningitis, and the authors actually discourage its routine use. So uh, that was where I thought the answer was: ad- well, adjunctive but, steroids is not really
0: an issue. But right, think- it's not, Rick. That doesn't cover uh, Doctor Kessler's point. Yes, yes. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. The question is: Is there one standard? You had to hit all of these things. And, you know, I I think that uh, there's plenty of stuff which is not proven, which we do routinely. That doesn't mean it's it's that what we're doing is right. All it means is it's just another. As I often point out, the the medical books of 100 years ago were just as big as the medical books today. They just have had a different collection of misinformation in them. And and so what was, what was standard of care then would be considered malpractice today. You know, may my words be kind today, as my mother would say, because you may have to eat them tomorrow. There you go.
1: Listen, Greg, we have one more case, uh, one more letter that I think is actually modestly complicated. Would you uh, kind of get in and dissect this down yeah. for us?
0: Oh, my God. Uh, We've got a letter from from one of the listeners, and he has asked this to to remain anonymous. Uh, That's like when that person in the emergency comes up and says, I have a friend who has this drip. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So we have a friend who has a medical legal drip. uh, And he wrote to us and said, I'm involved in a case as a witness. Uh, The hospital is a defendant in the case. No physician is actually named in the initial Uh, pleadings of the case. In the initial summons and complaint, they don't use a doctor's name. Now, the hospital is sued, but it has everything to do with what the doctor did in the emergency department. So the hospital is serving as the master here. Um, The doctor can be involved at some point in time. Now, here are the problems. This doctor has gone, three of the doctors in the group have gone and given depositions on this case. They've paid for the medical coverage out of their own pocket because their insurance company said, if you're not named, we're not paying. I'm sorry, no name on a piece of paper, we're not paying. By the way, this doctor informs us that at his hospital, they have a cross indemnification clause in the in the contract with the hospital. Can I expound upon that for a second, Rick? Please do. Yeah, cross indemnification is a methodology by which we try and cut down the amount of litigation between the parties. What the hospital says in the contract is, if we're both sued, or if we're sued, and it's actually your fault, you will pay us, the hospital. By the same token, if you're sued, doctor, And really, it's the fault of one of our nurses, one of our this or that, then then we'll pay you. But it never works that way. It only comes back the other way. And here's the problem. The insurance company is refusing to get involved because they're not actually named. This is what I call bad faith on the part of the insurance company. And, And listen carefully. If you're ever in this mess... Doctors out there listening, this is what you have to do. Number one, you write a letter back to the hospital, which says, we don't want to hear about you settling this case and sending us the bill. If there's ever a possibility we're going to have to participate, involve us now, put us on notice, third party us, do whatever you'd like. But we want our carrier, our insurance to be activated on this case. Number two, I'd send a letter to the insurance company that said, you know, we're giving depositions. You know, we were the people involved. Uh, It's a sham to think that we're not going to be named and asked to pay money uh, under this contract. Please get involved in this case now. And uh, insurance companies that haven't done that and the physicians have lost money, I've gone to testify – on bad faith claim cases. And as far as I'm concerned, I can see that I'm getting wound up on this. But I, I, I think it's immoral, illegal, and fattening for an insurance company not to step up to the plate here and understand what they're going to have to do.
1: Well, Greg, calm down. Now. I, can, I can sense your blood pressure is <laughs> going up.
0: Yeah, I'm about to find a bucket <laughs> to kick here, Rick. I mean, you know, boy, God, if I only, if I only had a small kitten to step up.
1: Hey, listen. Oh, um, God. One of the things that was very unusual about this case is the hospitals being sued and the doctors are not yet. The doctors acknowledge that it's likely that they were involved in. And if you know, I'm not suggesting that the doctors were or did something wrong, but it's a, it's kind of nutty to just to sue the doc the hospital over care rendered by physicians.
0: Uh not so fast. What they know is this that. In medical malpractice cases where the hospital is the only defendant, um, they lose about twice as often as if only a physician is dependent. Uh, an organization, an institution, is never as personal to a jury as an individual doctor. Uh, and and I go back to uh, if if you remember the Watergate hearings and all that sort of thing. Remember J- uh, John Dean? Sure. Uh, yeah, and remember that gorgeous blonde wife of his who sat behind him Mo. for the entire time. Uh, Maureen, do you, you don't remember? Yeah, yes. Of course. Yeah, uh, Rick, don't give me any crap here. You were <laughs> drooling the entire time. But the the bottom line is it personalized him. It made him more sympathetic. And so uh, a lot of plaintiffs lawyers, you and I had one on on the show here a few months back who said I like suing the hospital uh, and and downplaying the docs simply because I'm more likely to get a get a verdict that pays money, and so this is not uncommon. But but just understand, in this case, the one we're talking about now, there's no question that the only malpractice claimed is on the part of the physician, who who is the direct agent and servant of the hospital. Um, you know what? The, the, this hospital, uh, I'll bet you dollars to donuts, is going to ask, for if they have to pay something, they're going to ask for money. And here's the real crime. They could settle out from under the doctors without any input from those doctors and then send them the bill. This is, this is horrendous. Uh, you know, of anything we've discussed on this tape, this is the one that there ought to be. Fire bells going off, lights flashing in your eyes, because uh, I've, I've been the I was, you know, putting dirt in the ground on their face on a group that got uh, that got uh, screwed over by their hospital and had to declare bankruptcy on exactly this kind of case.
1: Well, good to know, Greg. Listen, uh, what about a, a few cases?
0: You want a couple of cases? Yeah,
1: Let's do a couple of cases.
0: OK. Oh, my God. And and that's still going to lo- give us time for wine of the month, though, isn't it? Greg?
1: Actually, I'm watching the meter here, Greg. We, we're into this 56 minutes. We have about 20 minutes to go.
0: Oh, OK. Well, we got one here. <clears throat> this case. And, and by the way, whenever I mention a specific name on a specific case, it has been adjudicated. It is public record. So I don't want anybody writing in saying, oh, you used my name, you did this or that. Just, just listen carefully. This is, the, this is a case which uh, uh, on question of a stroke uh, and outrageous behavior by a judge. Uh, a, a, this, this has to do with the Lady of Sea Hospital, S-E-A Hospital in Louisiana, took place in March of 2005 in the middle of the night. A patient comes in to be evaluated by the emergency physician uh, who, who uh, immediately suspected a stroke. The only complaint of the patient was decreased vision in one eye. He then calls an ophthalmologist uh, to see the patient. The only finding, remember, is decreased vision in an eye. So, there's a fairly broad differential here. I mean, does he have uh, um, uh, retrobulbar neuritis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Amaurosis? Amaurosis, fugax, all of those. So, he calls the doc, releases the patient at 7 a.m., and he has an appointment for him at 9 a.m. at the ophthalmologist's office. The plaintiff, plaintiff, because he felt better, did not go to the ophthalmologist's office. Not a good idea. But then that evening, um, he strokes out uh, and comes in with a, with a uh, dominant hemisphere stroke. Now, the fight goes on in this case. You know, should he be admitted him? Was it a, definitely a stroke going on? Blah, 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 blah. Here's the bitch. The jury found in favor of the doctor. They said, no problem. The judge utilized his discretion, put aside the jury verdict, and awarded $5.7 million to the plaintiff. Wow. Uh, which not only exhausted the emergency physician's insurance policy, but would put him into bankruptcy. Anybody like this so far? I don't. All right. Are they allowed to do that? Well, that's the point. And, and, and uh, so there had to be another action where this is bumped and you got to remember the doc at this point has been adjudicated against him, not by the jury of his peers who, by the way, we denigrate all the time, but they had, they had let him off. The judge says, no, that's not a fair verdict. We're given $5.7 million. Well, anyway, what actually happened was that this, uh, the defense verdict was returned. Uh, The uh, plaintiff filed a motion maintaining uh, the defense expert testified. It didn't know the standard of care. Yeah, 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 yeah. All the usual stuff. In any event, this case was was uh, uh, reduced. This uh, this case was then reduced. This was the decision that was made uh, to five hundred thousand dollars, which was in line with the state cap. Now, whether the judge knew this was going to happen or not, I don't know. But they still wound up paying not the $5.7 million, but $500,000 on a case where the emergency physician was found by the jury not guilty. Um, you know, if those people who are occupying Wall Street want to do something, uh, they ought to occupy 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and get this kind of shit taken care of. Hey, uh, Greg, uh, did
1: you... <laughs> uh have you heard this big trend there's a major major um group out here that owns hospitals they own 42 of them and they're associated with a religious order that are um requiring their contract physicians to have two million five million dollar coverage instead of the uh one million three million which had been the case uh for a long long time and the doctors out here are saying hey what's the story here um this is going to substantially increase our premiums and when you look at the data there are many fewer suits in going on in California just like there are in Texas and uh, they're saying there's no justification for this increase and the hospital says listen you're a contract doctor if you want to play ball you need to do 5 million or 2 million have you heard that
0: no I- I, you know, I've heard that discussed that it's going to happen. Is that definitely gone through? I,
1: I don't want to name names, but uh, it, it is actively going on right now in California.
0: Oh my God! Uh, God help us! God help us on this stuff. Um, let, let, let's do another case, okay, Rick? Yes, before sir. I, before I have an MI <laughs> right here, and and let's get let's get some good news here. Um, uh, this case uh, comes to us from the state of Connecticut. Uh, failure to admit a young man with chest pain, uh, and to properly interpret the EKG.
1: Well, that sounds death. familiar.
0: Oh, death from myocardial infarction. Now we all say that you can't say within this many years or that many years when you're going to have an MI. This guy was 25 years old. Not only was he just 25 years old when the emergency doc saw him, he had no pain. And what, what, when after his death, which was in about 12 hours after he left the emergency department, uh, autopsy confirmed the fact it was d- uh, due to an infarction due to dissection of the anterior descending coronary artery. Mm-hmm. Boy, days go by when I don't see that one. You got right, it, Rick. I mean, this is a congenital problem. Um, anyway, of course, plaintiff claims the doctor on all chest pain should get, and, and somebody with MD, F-A-C-E-P after their name, which I will not will not mention, testified, oh, all cases of chest pain need a stat cardiology consult, serial enzymes and troponins, blah, 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 blah. This is on a 25-year-old who was feeling better when he saw him. Um, the, the, uh, it's interesting to note that... Um, that he did refer the patient, they had a conver- uh, c- conversation on the phone with another doctor, um, and uh, the, the EKG was faxed to this second doctor. Uh, again, nonspecific STT wave changes noted. So now the, now the, um, the case goes forward. Failure to properly read the EKG, interpret the EKG, and actually the, uh, the uh, experts from the, from the defense side uh, were, were um, prominent, and, and they said, you know what, you can't call anything off of this, and the good news, this is a defense verdict for uh, the emergency physician and the, the cardiologist he sent the uh, EKG to, uh, so there's some good news for you out there.
1: Well, you know, I believe the statistics are that if you go to trial, you're going to win 85% of the time. And, um, and so this is consistent with that data. We've all seen these cases of myocardial infarctions that are in extraordinarily young people. And I think one of the concerns there is it's okay to miss an MI in an 80-year-old there's, you know, there aren't, you're not going to be able to show any damages of any consequence because they've exceeded their lifespan by what they should have been li- uh, living by about Rick, three years.
0: Yeah, Rick, you realize you and I are approaching this, so it'd uh, be nice now.
1: So <laughs> the idea of having these MIs in a typically young people, every one of us has seen them. I think that the idea of being aware that you don't have to have an atherosclerotic process, but that you can have some other kind of process, which includes the coronary arteries, is an important thing to be acknowledging.
0: You know, uh, all I can tell you is we we can make any rule we want. Each one of us is going to have a chest pain case at some point in time. I mean, Rick, how many 25-year-olds, you know, without without uh, Marfan syndrome or something like that, have you ever worked up completely for an MI? Come on.
1: Yes, but every one of us has cases of people who are extraordinarily young having an MI. I don't remember a lot of my old cases, but I do remember a woman who came (laughs) in on.
0: (laughs) You you can't remember anything before the (laughs) 60s, so that's okay. I remember a
1: woman who came on uh, to the ER on January 1st uh, January first, she comes in. She had gotten a. um, She had just been out jogging. This is one of her new uh, New Year's resolutions. She's in her thirties, and she comes into the ER with chest pain, and obviously, a thirty-year-old is not going to have any problem. Well, we did the EKG, and she had her uh, anterior myocardial infarction. It just scares the bejesus out of you when that happens,
0: right? It always does. Yes, it does. But
1: every one of us has these cases.
0: God, I should have gone into international banking where things are calm. <laughs> uh, you want to do uh, you want to do uh, one more case? Let's we got do time. another. Yep. OK, this is a quickie. And then we'll then we'll get out of here. Man claims injury to penis from insertion of Foley catheter. Um, this was a case in which a guy's in the emergency department, uh, Florida case, and an emergency physician orders a Foley catheter. Uh, the, uh, according to the patient, the nurse had problems passing the catheter. The nurse doesn't really note that. And she says, you know, if it's just a second try or something, she never notes anything. Catheter comes in. Now, the patient claims that following it, when discharged in the hospital, the plaintiff claimed that he suffered erectile dysfunction, painful erections, testicular pain, as the result of the insertion of this Foley, um, you know this is this is kind of an odd claim, and uh, what all I can say is I guess the evidence didn't stand up in court, Rick. <laughs> 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 uh, that or he or we changed the charge uh, on the doctor to a, a assault uh, of a dead weapon. But uh, <laughs> uh, the bottom line is the emergency physician is involved. Because they claim he gave an order for something that was unnecessary.
1: That's a very important point, Greg.
0: Well, see, the point is, if he says, I think they need a catheter, um, it's the nurse's obligation to do it correctly, of course. But I don't think we're at that point in the country yet where we can say, uh, oh, no, we're not going to do a catheter on this patient or that patient. And uh, there was a war of experts about that question. Now, it just so happened that the, uh, the uh, nurse and the doctor prevailed. This was a defense uh, verdict. Uh, and who knows whether he had impotence problems before the uh, catheter was passed. But the entire question of everything we do has a downside, whether it's putting in an NG tube, which I consider the NG tube to be a, an instrument of historical interest only, um, a catheter. No matter what you do, there's a downside, and there is a potential risk. So, you know, even though he won the case, this doc had to put up with being sued for a period of time.
1: Greg, let me make a comment. The, um, you know, the CMS has these no fly things where we're not going to pay you if you get this complication. And right, we have right. a goodly number of papers in our database that say that the emergency department is the culprit in terms of putting in unnecessary catheters. And I have at least five papers that say you can fix this. You need to have a list of indications and that you need to hold people's feet to the fire. Cause many, many times these are put in for nursing convenience without medically appropriate indications. Um, So this is just one of the things that has come up in terms of CMS is not interested in in people being admitted with unnecessary catheters. And there's a very clear-cut list of indications, and I think this is something for the emergency departments to step up to because their administration, the hospital, is not going to be too interested in you uh, putting in catheters, secondary infections. Patients wind up staying longer in the hospital because those extra days in the hospital are not going to be paid for. So Greg... We have, let's see, we're up to 70 minutes, my friend. It's time for Wine of the Month.
0: It is time for Wine of the Month, and we have several of them to talk about today. First of all, another shout-out to David Essler. David's from uh, British Columbia. When he came here to Ann Arbor to take our eight-hour course, which I'm hoping that uh, more and more people are going to do, uh, David brought me a bottle of uh, of, uh, Burrowing Owl, just like it sounds. You can Google it. Burrowing Owl uh, uh, Winery, British Columbia. Uh, they are getting very heavy into some great reds. Um, I had four people sit around, uh, try this, and uh, David, we pronounce it excellent. Uh, if you want more information on getting this wine, listeners, it's one eight seven seven four nine eight zero six two zero. 498 620 You will like it. Number two, I know I took crap at the national meeting about recommending fess parker uh yes he does have wines which are overly which are heavy in price no question about it Uh, but we were referring to the uh white uh family reserve which is 28 bucks a bottle rated 91 it's terrific and while we're on it fess parker winery is located in santa barbara county now everybody knows napa and sonoma for those of you who have never been to Santa Barbara County, it is stunning. It is gorgeous. And the wines coming out of there are great. Now, one I'm going to recommend you, a, a winery I'm going to recommend, all of their stuff is great, but the, the buy of the century. And, and uh, all the great wine critics, and one guy I follow particularly says, I was blown away by the wines I tasted from Melville. M e l v i l l e. He says these are some of the most pure, thrilling wines being made in California today. Their two thousand nine Pinot Noir uh, Vernas is uh, twenty four bucks a bottle, and I know this region a little bit. Down the street, and I'm literally down the street at Palmina. Uh, they they put up a wine very similar to this seventy bucks a bottle. Ladies and gentlemen, why would you pay $70 when for 24 bucks you can get a, a wine rated by Parker's at 91. Uh $24. Come on. Don't miss this wine bargain.
1: Thanks. $24. I'm sure that wine that David Esther got you was also not an inexpensive wine.
0: No, 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 it isn't. Remember, Rick, Mel's not here today. We're allowed to talk about wines that do not have a screw top <laughs> or, or, or a t-shirt to go with them that says Annie Green Springs. So uh, yeah, this is okay. And I, and I want to say nothing bad about either Boone's Farm or Annie Green Springs, because I got plastered on it many times as a medical student. But We're more sophisticated now, Rick.
1: Yeah, this may be more detailed than we want to know, Greg. Hey, listen, (laughs) this is the November issue, 2011. Thanks for listening. We'll see you guys next month. Bye for now.
0: Bye-bye.